All right, you guys doing okay? All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning. We are, uh, we're going to kick, be kicking off a series on looking at the book of Ezra called Restoration. Been mulling over this for a number of weeks, a number of months, just thinking about these themes. I love biblical history. I love the Old Testament. We are, you and I, friends, here in 2019, we are part of this story of God's redemption in the world. So these sort of ancient stories in the Old Testament, they're not just disconnected from where we are. They are very much a part of God's plan to get us where we are today. And the more we can understand about where we've been, about how God has worked in the past, it helps shape our understanding of what He's continuing to do because God doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His way of operating doesn't change. He has some new things that He does, you know, but, but, but the, the general way that God works in the world, His plan doesn't really change. He knows what He's doing. And I, I, I want to understand more about this. I want to understand more about how does God bring about restoration in the people? Because I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of His restoration in my culture, in my community, in my state, in my world. I want to partner with Him uh, just to, to be a part of what He's doing. And I think God's called us to that. I hope I'm not alone. I don't think I'm alone in that. So we're going to be, for, for the next several weeks, I'm not sure how many, um, maybe three. I know Meg said we're not going to cut this short, but actually we are because there's kind of a great break in the middle that I just feel like the Spirit of God is saying, end there, uh, and we'll pick more up next week, and I'm okay with that. So Megan, it's not a, it's not a time thing. I just really felt like God said, there's where you're going to land this plane. I, yeah, no, you shouldn't have. No, 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 no. Um, Ezra chapter 1 is where we are. Really quickly, I want to give you some background uh, just to this story. There's a whole lot of history to Israel. Don't have time to get into that. I want to give you just the real quick bullet points. Um, Ezra takes place sort of in, in the season following the collapse of the Jewish nation. If you know your history, Israel was divided into two different parts, the kingdom of the north, the kingdom of the south. Um, they practiced centuries of idolatry, centuries of wickedness. And God brought judgment on them. First, he brought judgment to the northern kingdom. And then eventually, he brought judgment to uh, the, the, the kingdoms in the south. And uh, in 586 BC, that happened. The kingdom of Judah was taken, was sacked uh, by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And Jerusalem was burned and the temple was destroyed. And the people living in that area were taken into exile in Babylon. That's called the Babylonian exile, obviously. Um, so they're in, they're in exile for 70 years. All this was prophesied too. Isaiah prophesied this, you know, many, many, many years before centuries where he's prophesying that this is going to happen. It's pretty incredible. So Ezra and Nehemiah together in the ancient sort of ancient scriptures were one book. Only, you know, sort of in our, in our Western way do we separate them. But Ezra and Nehemiah were written originally together as one book describing this re the return of these people out of exile in Babylon back to Israel, back to the place where God, it's, it's the story of their restoration as God's people. And again, that was prophesied as well. The prophets were saying, God's going to judge, God's going to put you in exile 70 years, but then he's going to bring you out. And Ezra and Nehemiah together are that story of God's restoration for them. By the way, all this, and if you're thinking, when does all this take? All this is around sort of the, you know, the 6th century BC. Ezra, when he's writing this, he would have been in around the same time period as, as Buddha uh, or Confucius or, um, or, or, or Socrates in, in Greece. So uh, sort of all of these world thinkers were contemporaries of, of Ezra who's writing this. The story of, of, of restoration in Ezra and Nehemiah 
take place across a long time, nearly a hundred years. So it's not just you know, a few weeks or a few months, it's a, it's a broad picture of all of this. And the books described three separate waves of people returning from Babylon to Israel. And the first wave comes under a guy, and we're going to introduce these characters in a minute, comes under, under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel who comes and he brings this wave of nearly 50,000 people back to establish, uh, sort of to, to begin to establish, and their focus is to rebuild the temple. That's their first objective as they come back in this first wave of 50,000 people is to rebuild the temple. Sometime later, there's another exodus of people um, who, who, who come under, um, under, under Ezra, and they come back for the sole purpose, and a few, you know, just a few thousand there, but this second wave comes back, and Ezra is part of this group, and his goal is not so much rebuilding the temple as it is rebuilding the people, rebuilding the community, rebuilding their identity. And Ezra, we're going to talk a lot about him. And then sometime later, Nehemiah is part of this as well. He returns. He's one of the leaders. He comes back with another group of people, and their objective is to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And there's all kinds of significance in each of those efforts, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the people, and rebuilding the wall. So uh, we're going to be looking at a little bit of that this morning. Let me give you some key figures real quick in all of these stories. Here are three names that you're going to come across as you're reading through this. Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. Great names for kids, by the way, for young families looking to have kids in the days to come. Got three boys right there. These are successive rulers in the Persian Empire. So by the time of Ezra, by the time of, of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Babylonian Empire has been replaced by the Persian Empire. And these are some of the leaders that we're going to see, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. Um, Ezra, of course, is a Jewish scribe and a priest. He restores prayer and faithfulness to the law. Nehemiah is another name we'll see. He is an officer in the the Persian king's court. Uh, Zerubbabel is a leader of the first wave of people, and later he is appointed as governor over this province in Judah. Joshua, you'll see this name as well. He's a high priest who serves alongside Zerubbabel. And then two prophets play a a significant role in this, Haggai and Zechariah. These uh, these are are prophets who are living in this time period. They are prophesying immediately to the people as this rebuilding effort is going on. So here's why this matters, this ancient history and this old story. We are very much, we are very much a church and a people in exile, Sociologists would say that Christian sociologists would say that we are in a post-Christian nation. Although it seems that we're not, pick up a coin or a dollar and it says in God we trust. Practically speaking, we are very much in a post-Christian nation. And it's becoming more so, and we're going to find that as the years go by, we are very much going to be akin to God's people living in Babylon. We're living in a new Babylon. We're living under very much of a secular influence. So God isn't so much calling us physically to leave here and go somewhere else, but He is calling us to reestablish our eyes. I believe this. He's calling the church in America to reestablish her identity as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So He's calling us to, to rid ourselves of the Babylon around us 
and to reestablish ourselves, our identity as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I think that's why this matters. I think that's why the Spirit of God has been pointing me back to these books to say, look at what I did. I'm doing the same thing now. I'm doing the same thing today. I'm calling my church. I'm calling my people to be restored as unique in the world. All right, you with me on this? Okay, we're going to jump in. Part one, return. Chapter one, here we go. We're going to read a little bit of this. This is the King's Edict, and then uh, a few points from that, and then another passage in chapter two, um, and then that'll be it for today. Chapter one, verse one says this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, so there's the reference, Jeremiah prophesied this. The Lord, listen to this, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's awesome to see that God is sovereign over the rulers of the world. God has authority. Even the most pagan kings separated from any kind of understanding of his law, God still can move their hearts. God is always in control. No matter what happens in the news today, no matter what happens with elections or anything else around the world, God is in control. God is on his throne. God moves the hearts of people. So we can take comfort just in this first verse right there. God's doing it. Um, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Let me pause right there. This is not so much that Cyrus has converted to the faith. This is really just a policy that the Persians are enacting of, of acknowledging sort of the diversity of now of their great empire and allowing each sort of conquered people to bring their own flavor to the table. So this is what made Persia, on the one, hand, on the, on the one sense, so powerful, is this idea of syncretism. We're going to sort of bring, let everybody come, and you worship your God and your culture, and you do your thing in your culture. So let's not be careful. Let's be careful. This is not, you know, he's not feeling, you know, like he's all focused on worshiping the Lord, but he's allowing the Jews to be the Jews. Uh, he says, verse 3, any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold. It's awesome. With goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God. And so look at what God does. Not only does God cause this pagan king to release the people to return. Remember, they had been conquered. They were a conquered people. They were forcibly brought from their land to Babylon for 70 years. So now not only has God opened up the heart of this conquered ruler, of this ruler, the people, and sending them back, but he's also saying, and by the way, all of the neighbors around them are going to pay for what God has called them to do. That's awesome, right? Look at what God's doing. All right. So with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem, verse five, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved. So God is still moving hearts, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of gold and silver and gold, with livestock, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. This is a lot like Exodus, you know, when, when God calls the people out of Exodus, you know, the, the people of Exodus sort of were, were, were so eager 
you know, to, to, for the people to go. They'd seen the plagues. They had seen all these terrible things. They're like giving all of their stuff. Here, take this. Take gold. Take silver. Just go. It's amazing how God does that. When God frees us and when, when God calls us into his promises, he provides in the most amazing ways. He doesn't say, okay, I'm calling you there. Now, you've got to figure it out. God says, I'm calling you there, but I'm going I'm to bless you the entire way. I want to provide a way. I want to just do everything I can to get you from point A to point B because that's where, that's where you belong. Verse 7, Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. So these would be all of the precious artifacts. You know, the, 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 lamp, the gold lampstands and and uh, likely the Ark of the Covenant would have been in there. We don't exactly know for sure, but we know that, that Nebuchadnezzar plundered the temple. And the temple at that time was just laden with gold. Go back and read, you know, in, 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 in Chronicles and, and just see the descriptions of how much gold, tons of gold, tons of silver, literally tons of this just adorning the entire temple. And then as, as Nebuchadnezzar, he just strips it all out takes every bit of it, puts it in his own treasure. Then Cyrus comes and says, we're going to give them all of this back. We're going to give, we're going to return all of this to them. Take this, take all of these articles of your faith and bring them back. Things that you thought were lost, bring them back. Look at what God's doing. And this is incredible news for the exiled people. These, these are ones who've been there for 70 years. You know, so th- this is akin to, to, uh, to, to all of us in America. Well, you know, let's pretend like that, that really, historically, we're, none of us are Americans. Let's pretend like we're, we're Polish, for example. And then in, somehow in 1931, or, you know, 1941, whatever 70 years ago is, somebody came and conquered us in Poland, our grandparents, brought them here to America and planted them. And then you and I, we were all born in America, right? We know we're probably Polish historically. We know that grandma and grandpa talk about it. We hear the stories, but by and large, we're American. I've been here. My mom and dad have been here. I love American food. I love American music. I don't want to go back to Poland. But this is an, this is an incredible news for an exiled people. And the Bible says that their hearts were moved to do this. And that says a lot there. How many of you would have your hearts moved that all of a sudden somebody said, okay, Polish American people, you can go back now. You know, most of us would be like, I don't want to go back. Very comfortable here. Right? God says their hearts were moved for this. And what's interesting is that not everybody goes. Not all the ones in exile go. God doesn't force them. Nobody forces them to go. Nobody forces them to return. That's not how God works. God gives an invitation. God says, this is what I want for you. But he also says, you're free to stay. And, many, and some of them do stay. And even, what's interesting is not, that not, not everyone goes, but everyone supports. Everyone pitches in. Even the ones that stay provide a way for those who want to, to go back home. So let's jump to chapter 2. So they do. They make their way back. And and then chapter 2 begins to list the names and the clans and the tribes. And it's it's interesting. And I was praying and asking the Lord, why these columns of numbers? And the sense that God was saying, he's saying, because every single person matters to me. In chapter 2, go to verse 64. The whole company... 
numbered 42,360. God counted each one. Somebody counted each one, but God knew and God called individuals to return back. Besides their 7,000-something male and female slaves, they also had 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. That's some serious record-keeping right there. We know exactly who's coming back. We've got 6,000 donkeys coming with us. Verse 68, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. Just a moment. Verse 69, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for his work. For this work, 67,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their town. Thank you. Perfect. So here's what I'm thinking on this. Babylon was a good place, but it wasn't home. Babylon was a good place but it wasn't home. And the, the people in exile were facing some significant challenges, even if they didn't realize it. After 70 years, they had developed a very comfortable life. I would say largely probably more comfortable than they had before. Babylon and Persia, that was New York City. That was the big time. This is where all the arts and all the culture all the music, all the incredible things were happening. This is comfortable. You know, you can go read the story of Daniel and his, his friends. That all takes place in this time period. And when Daniel is brought in, they prepare this huge feast for him. You know, and that's, that's indicative of how it was. Every comfort, every luxury. But they also face the challenge of their identity. And with each passing year, their identity as a unique people was getting more and more muted and diminished. They're surrounded by all of these other cultures, all these other people. They began to really think, are we really that unique? I mean, after all, God didn't keep his promises. God didn't live up to his end of the bargain. He let us be conquered. He let his temple be destroyed. And look at all these awesome World, all these cultures around us and all the gods that are here and how beautiful this is. And their identity as a unique people was being eroded away. And they were giving in to syncretism. They were giving in to this, you know, God plus kind of idea. You know, take a little bit of Yahweh and a little bit of this other God and a little bit of this culture and a little bit of this, mix it all together. This is exactly what we have in America. We're very syncretistic. We want Jesus plus you know, give, give me the God of the Bible, but also, you know, I kind of want all these other things as well. Jesus isn't unique. He was good. He was good, but he wasn't exclusive. He wasn't unique. He was a good teacher. And this is what this, is what this generation was falling into. And God comes and God says, you don't belong in exile. You belong home because I keep my promises. 
So this is the big idea, and we're going to land it here. Brian, you ready? Come on up, man. This was short. It's okay because we got another half next week and we're going to keep on going. Here's the big idea. You don't belong in the world's good. You belong in God's great. We don't belong in the world's good. We belong in God's great. Thank you, Sandra. Somebody's listening. And I just wonder, you know, I, I look around, I look at my own, the trajectory of my life and some of the struggles that we face, especially as we try to live out the American dream. And I wonder if sort of those struggles are God's way of saying, eh, don't get comfortable. This isn't your home. This isn't your place. You're not made for this. Don't make Babylon your home. I've called you to be a unique people. I've called you to be set apart. I've called you to accomplish my purposes. And I think God is moving the hearts of many in this church towards some of these same things. You know, I read a book this last summer by a pastor named Francis Chan out on the West Coast. He had built a great big megachurch cornerstone in Simi Valley, California, on the speaking circuit, well-known. You guys have heard him and listened to him. And several years ago, he looked around and said, what are we doing? What are we building? We've got this big mega church here with thousands and thousands of people in this million-dollar building and all these programs and all these things. And just like, what are we doing? Is this what God's called us to? He left that and walked, it, walked away from it. Didn't walk away from the faith. He's walked into a deeper reality of what he sensed God was calling him to. And I think restoration then, whatever we apply that to, whether it's to, a, you know, to an individual, to a family, to a church, to any of these things, where are we called to be? What's the great that we're called to be? And the good is very tempting. It's very tempting to stay where God has been, right? That's the worst place to be is where God has been. I don't want to be where God has been. I want to be where he's going. And sometimes it's a difficult journey between where he's been and where he's going. And sometimes we feel in between, right? But God keeps his promises. God does new things. God accomplishes his purposes. So, yeah, we're stopping here this morning. You don't belong in the old. You don't belong in exile. You belong in God's great new things. He's calling us to return. I want to pray for us, and then I have a few um, words of knowledge that somebody else sent about healings this morning, and I know we're running a little short on time. Bear with me here. I want to read these out after we pray, and then we'll have some prayer time, and then we'll have a, a soft dismissal. If those of you need to go, that's okay. I'm asking, though, just like the Word says, I want my heart to be moved. I do. I want my heart to be in a position where He can shift it and move it and prompt me to things, move me around the different things. I know you want that as well. Let's just be in that posture, all right? So, Father, we love you this morning. 
We believe your word. We believe your promises, Lord. We know that you are a God who restores. You're a God who doesn't leave us in exile, doesn't leave us in the in-between, but you're always calling us into the greater, calling us, Lord, away from the good into the great. So, Lord, don't let us grow comfortable and complacent, blended in with the culture around us. Lord, let us hear your voice that speaks identity over us, that we are a chosen generation. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a holy nation. And we are brought into the world and we are brought together not just to be blessed by you, but to bless the world. To be channels of grace to the lost. To be agents of reconciliation to the estranged. To be channels of healing for the broken and wounded. Father, do it for your glory. Amen.